Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is In Plain Sight, Episode 4. Jono has been running from the voices in his head for years. At times, they ordered him to get away from the familiar spaces of his life and take to the streets. He's still out there living rough, according to his friends and family. They expected him to crash, but to me, that hasn't happened. Perhaps he's learnt to live within the different personalities that have taken over his mind. And let's face it, it's hard to survive solo in a modern city, even for those with money and friends. And you always need someone. Jono long relied on old friends to help him understand the dark, chaotic thoughts he was having. Initially, it was Gareth Jones. So he started asking where someone who we went to high school was. He wanted to catch up with them. He had some questions he wanted to ask them. And sometimes it would get um, pretty out there. One person, he door-knocked two blocks of houses in her area to find her house to ask her questions. Jono's delusions were driving him towards action. It was becoming a struggle to resist, as he told Emma Beattie in episode three. He he rang me and said, can I come over? And I was at the shops and I said, look, meet me at the shops because I thought, you know, that was a better thing to, you know, meet in public. He had said to me that he was having thoughts about killing people. When he was having his delusions, he told me that he thought his mum was a serial killer. But, you know, prior to... I don't remember him having an issue with his mum beforehand. His mother, Carol Cloak, told Channel 9's A Current Affair this. He rang me to ask me if he'd ever heard me. And I had to pull the car up and I said, No, Jonathan, never. You've never heard me. Why? He said, Because the voices in my head tell me I've heard you. Gareth Jones believed he would only get sicker and sicker, so he took Jono, who was somewhat reluctant, to see a psychiatrist. Uh, It was quite obvious that Jono wasn't well and he needed professional help. I could always talk to him. You know, I'm really worried that you're going to get sicker and sicker, you're not going to believe anything I'm saying. And then he started to say some things to her, and even about aliens at one point, uh, about house being bugged, cars and all these type of things. And the lady told him he was delusional, it's most likely schizophrenic, uh, and that, you know, you're going to get worse and worse uh, if you don't take medication and you're not going to know reality from, you know, your own thoughts the longer this goes on. I then took him to a pharmacy. I bought it for him because he had no money. Uh, As he'd gotten sicker, he just couldn't hold down a job. He couldn't work a day. I think there was a perfect storm of different triggers for him. So I bought him the medication... Uh, took him home, gave him so many of my DVDs and books and just things to keep him occupied. And um, he, I don't think he actually took it. I don't think he ever took the medication. 
I know he definitely did buy more or go back for another prescription. So that was that. To this point, Jono had been self-medicating with marijuana. It had been his drug of choice since his teens. He'd given up alcohol in his 20s and concentrated on cannabis, according to Paul Devitt. Perhaps this played a role in his mental disintegration. Paul Devitt. The rest of us boys mingled a fair bit in recreational drugs other than marijuana. Jono may have with other stuff on a, maybe four or five different occasions, but he was a heavy weed smoker, very heavy weed smoker. Did that have a hand in the psychosis? I'd probably say yes, without being an expert. I guess the one point where he probably should have stopped was when Gareth took him to the psychiatrist and they gave him medication and um, he realised, he did realise that he had mental illness, you know, and he took the medication. He seemed to be better. Like, when he started taking the medication, he stopped smoking weed. And I think the reason that he stopped taking the medication was because he blew out, like, with his weight. He put on a heap of weight. And um, I don't think he was happy about that, so he stopped taking the medication. He started smoking weed again. And, yeah, here we are. Emma Beatty. I told him that he needed to see the psychiatrist that he was seeing and they had put him on medication and he didn't think it was working. He, he started taking the medication and then he'd stopped taking it because he didn't think it was working but he wasn't taking it long enough for it to actually work. So then I called the psychiatrist that he was seeing and the psychiatrist basically said, I can't help someone who won't help themselves. You know, I've given him everything that I can to try and help him and that's all I can do. Jono couldn't be committed to a mental institution until he did something to justify police intervention. I felt frustrated with him because I felt like he could have helped himself. You know, it was like a circle, you know, they were saying, well, we can't do anything until he does something, but then he did something and it was too late to help him, so... Paul Devitt. That's pretty sad, you know, there's big cracks in the floor of what would you call um, mental health, you know. You go to a place like this, you tell them what you're thinking and they give you a couple of tablets and send you on your way. And the only time that gets taken really seriously is when a guy runs off the rails like this, you know, and it's too late, you know. Contrary to what his friends thought, Jono wasn't always in Seymour. At this time, Jono's father, Doug, was in a nursing home in Brisbane, slowly dying from early-onset dementia. Jono was going up to see him, driving non-stop from Seymour to Brisbane. He would spend a few hours with his father and then return to Victoria. Contact with his Wallen friends diminished to almost nothing. The period of searching for answers was over. As far as anyone knows, he did not take any medication after Gareth Jones's intervention. One day out of the blue, I got a phone call and um, it was Carol Cloak, Jono's mum. She said I hadn't really had much contact with Jono and I've been in contact with him and I can't believe how sick he is. I've done everything to try and get him help and I went to a mental health service in Seymour who said, oh, yeah, we've already seen him. And when I inquired how have you seen him, what had happened, the service eventually gave up my name and my phone number, as in this person had brought him in. So I explained to her what had been going on and what I had known and all these types of things. 
but you know he doesn't think he's got a problem so you know uh, he's a danger through self-neglect um, he's a danger arising from the lack of treatment he wasn't threatening to hurt himself or all these things it's just he was in a make-believe world so she had tried to get him help, he didn't want help by then. So I put together all this information for her to basically try and get him committed involuntary. It was May 2015 and that was really the last I had much anything to do with Jono. In mid-2016, Jono's father Doug died in Queensland where he'd lived with his second family for many years. His passing coincided with a falling out between Jono and David. I know that when they went on, I think it was the funeral of their father who was living in Queensland who had early dementia and passed away, that Dave and Jono had to be put on different sides of a plane because there was that strong an argument and hatred from Jono towards Dave. By late 2016, Jono was mostly living off the map moving at night between his two cars and the house in Seymour when his mental state allowed. In those more lucid moments, perhaps he was preparing himself, seeking out the special hiding places that he might need in the next phase. The week before the murder of his brother, Jono spent time with his mother Carol at her home in southern New South Wales. As always, he roamed the district on foot at night, but he seemed calm and mostly happy, she told me. He was off his meds and seemed to be in control of his thoughts. Days later, he is alleged to have killed his brother, Paul Devitt. I think that's the one thing that I've realised is that he had this plan. He had that plan for a long time. He knew where he was going to go. And I'm pretty sure wherever that is, that's where he's going back to. There have been up to 300 reports to Crime Stoppers regarding Jono but no confirmed sightings, at least none the police will talk about. There is a perception that may be not true that police are doing nothing, just waiting for Jono, David Camerata. Then I start to think, oh, the police aren't, you know, they know nothing. And when they ask me questions about, like, um, what I'm doing, like, with the podcast and things like that, I start to get concerned that that means they've got absolutely no idea, which I'm sure they have and haven't at the same time. I know that they are working on it, but then I, you know, might jump on my phone, I might send a text message saying, you know, what's going on? And they're really good. They've been fantastic. What do you work on? And that's the problem. What do you work on? I know they went around to all the comic shops early on. Yeah. Brothels too? I don't know why they would go to brothels. Did he have a history of going to brothels? Yeah, he did. He did a lot as... um, you know, from that period when he was living back up in Wallen, he would visit them. I wouldn't say sort of super frequently, not that I would know. I mean, I wasn't with him all the time, but uh, he definitely would go. After this conversation, I rang around my contacts in the sex industry and asked them to see if Jono had returned to brothels. Three months later, I got a message back. Hey, by the way, that guy you were looking for, Jonathan, he was in a Geelong brothel late last year. One of the girls was just telling me. The sex worker was unwilling to be interviewed, but said she'd been working in a brothel called the Rain Star in Geelong, west of Melbourne, until early November. She couldn't recall the exact date when Jono was there, and he wasn't her client, but she had no doubt that he'd been there. And his distinctive comic book tattoos had been confirmed. From that day on, his picture was displayed in private areas of the brothel, 
but he hadn't returned as far as the sex worker knew. I made a follow-up call to the brothel and one of the staff members confirmed what I'd been told, adding the man who'd been there was scruffy and in his 40s. She said the sex worker had recognised Jono's comic book tattoos and yes, after that, a poster of Jono's likeness had been put up in the parlour. He hasn't returned since. The staff member couldn't confirm that a report had been made to police. On October 17, 2018, police held a press conference to announce they'd posted a reward of $100,000 for information leading to Jono's capture. There was no specific event they cited for the timing of the media conference or the posting of the reward, but they did seem much more certain about what Jono was up to. They said it was based on the CCTV footage of the attack on David Camerata in August. I thought that police did not reveal they had a new sighting in Geelong in the hope that Jono might return and this time be captured. Jono's mother begged for her son to come in from the cold. Just stop hurting people. Hand yourself in and get the help you need. But when I spoke to police, they were actually unaware of Jono's alleged appearance in Geelong. If it's correct, the sighting in Geelong changes the whole case for me. It debunks the idea that Jono is living rough, perfectly alone somewhere around Melbourne. It never rang true that Jono had developed the skills to evade everyone for so long. Over the course of this investigation, I've spoken to a number of homeless people and some suffering mental illness like Jono, and none said it could be done. Maybe a month or two, but two and a half years out of sight is just not possible. After the Geelong sighting, I could stop looking for Jono under bridges. The search also changes with this information. If Jono has money to pay for sex in brothels, then he could in fact be anywhere in Australia. He has family connections in New South Wales and Queensland. But that seems less likely when he has a friend in Melbourne or possibly Geelong. He's probably still sleeping rough a lot of the time. It's how he manages his shifts between the different personalities. But he has the backup when he needs it and a source of funds. Why would anyone harbour a fugitive when a reward of $100,000 is up for grabs? There is talk it will soon be increased. David McCulloch, a reformed criminal and subject of my Jailhouse Lawyer podcast, says money is not always a motivator. There are many people who want to take care of each other, even in the homeless arena, and sometimes even more so. And the offer of reward money would mean nothing to those people. To some it would, but to others it would just be I really love this person. And it might not be the love that is sustainable through the long term, but the old saying is love conquers all, and that could be how he is managing to survive without being discovered. Money appeals to a lot of people, but there's also a fair percentage that it would make no difference whatsoever. The person aiding Jono is not just giving up reward money. They're also enabling or assisting an alleged serial killer who police believe is not finished yet. The people on Jono's list are certainly not relaxing. Paul Devitt. I leave for work at 4.30 in the morning. This seems to be the time that he likes to um, get out there and do his thing. There was a fair few mornings I'd walk to me car with a baseball bat, you know, like, if he's going to get me, he won't be from behind. He's going to have to get me from the front and he's not a ninja or a martial artist or anything. He's a crazy, overweight man, you know. 
Danny Camerata. There's also been other theories that uh, perhaps he has met someone that is in a similar situation of mental health and that maybe they're just being supported by the government and just um, they need him as companionship. If that person, if they exist, is listening, yes. what message would you say to them about their actions in preventing Jonathan from coming in and giving himself up? Uh, you're just as evil. <laughs> just have a bit of compassion. Just think about the person that you're keeping. Think about what he's done and who he's done it to. He hasn't done it to randoms, he's done it to people that have cared for him and have looked after him. You know, how confidently can you say that he won't do it to you? In Plain Sight is a real crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Listener.